Hi, everyone, and thanks again for joining me for another episode of the Gaudi Misfits 22 podcast, both on YouTube and then Podbean podcast, which you can get on Spotify, Apple and Amazon Music. I always sound like so impressive when I say crap like that. You know, I sound like Joe Rogan on here. You can get me on Spotify and I don't even know what Spotify is. It sounds (laughs) sounds like something you'd want to get off your rug. more than. I I don't really. Oh, now they're probably yeah exactly now watch spotify immediately uh, remove me from since i'm sure their flying monkeys are out investigating every errant word on on, on their platform uh but anyway that's neither here nor there. i'm excited today we're having uh, we're getting away from uh inside baseball ecclesiastical church talk church talk uh church chat and we're going to start talking some dense theology again today. So for those fans of the dense theology, uh, here you go. Today's topic is the historical mediation of being. <laughs> so that, and and, and there, that's pretty dense theological stuff right there. What what is that? What does it mean? Why is it important? Uh, joining me today, as always, it seems like my my former colleague at DeSales University, the one, the only, the maladroit misanthrope, Dr. Rodney Hauser. Actually, you once called me the maladroit misanthrope, and <laughs> it, uh, I, I, I think it's questionable as to which one of us is more. I'm I'm more of the misanthrope. That's true, but the maladroit, I don't know. I think I have that. Yeah, but Rodney is the <laughs> former. Uh, Rodney is the chair of the Department of Theology at the one and only DeSales University. Also joining us, and and Rachel, don't 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 cry sexism or something here. I'm going to save you for last. <laughs> All right. Is Dr. Adrian Walker, who teaches at St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park, California, uh, known Adrian for years, uh, former teacher at the John Paul II Institute of Washington, Catholic University of America, and uh, just an all around uh, great guy and a genius. genius. (laughs) Sheer genius, raw genius. In the the genius in the house. All right. And so finally, my favorite introduction for Adrian is international man of mystery, international man. of Yeah, baby. Yeah. International man of mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Who's his mini me? Well, that would be Dr. Evil. That would be Dr. Evil. I'm the baldest one here, so I'm probably the biggest candidate for Dr. Evil. Uh, I need to find a mini me. You complete me. Uh, Rachel Coleman, Dr. Rachel Coleman. A former student of of ours uh, at DeSales University, but got her Ph.D. at the JP2 Institute of Washington, D.C., now teaches in Massachusetts up there at uh, Assumption, right? Yep. Is it is it Assumption College or University? University. Ah, so there are no more colleges. Yeah, that's right. There are no more colleges anymore. Well, some actually, I think, have retained college. Hey, Rodney, isn't Muhlenberg College in the Lehigh Valley still college or is it Muhlenberg University? If you have a really big endowment, you keep the name. Yeah, you keep the college name. Yeah. (laughs) Like Boston College. If you don't, you you pretend that you're something you're not and therefore you call yourself a university. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, well, one thing. Yeah, one thing that you're going to be in trouble. I don't have tenure yet. (laughs) Yeah, well, nobody cares. So. Because uh, and I don't mean that personally. I mean it in the sense I was about to say one of the things that someday I think the four us the four of us need to get the, to get together to talk about is uh, uh, university education in general and Catholic university 
education in particular, because uh, lately, yeah. now that it no longer pays my bills, I am free to say that I, I uh, you know, burn the house down. I hope they all rot. They're all a pile of overpriced monstrosities uh, that pretentious and so on. Um, but nevertheless, that that's a rather extreme view, I know. But let's get on with the historical mediation of being. And so I'm going to I warned uh, Dr. Walker in advance, Adrian that I was going to pick on him, on him first, because quite frankly, uh, this is one of those times when I'm interviewing people or this is more of a conversation than an interview where your humble host here is not exactly completely up to speed on the topic. So I'm going to re- and then we got grand admissions from everybody beforehand that neither is anybody else on the panel. That's right up to speed on the topic. So that's that's a caveat to listeners uh, to, to, to uh, please be kind as, as you're listening to us. But anyway, I'm going to turn it over to Adrian, because uh, all, all, all joking aside, this actually is a very serious talk topic. We've right. been wanting to talk about this for several months. And, you know, <clears throat> I had to go to Rome. And so that got canceled and blah, blah, blah. And so here we are. So, Adrian, uh, get us started here. What what is what do we mean when we say the historical mediation of being and why is it important? Uh, well, I suppose part of the purpose of our conversation is to answer the first part of the question. Um, what does it mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I won't start off by saying what I, what I think it means. I'm just going to sort of point towards the ballpark in which we'll be playing um, so that it's maybe a little bit clearer what 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 we're talking about, sort of roughly speaking. Um, and then maybe in that context, we can say something about the importance of the topic. And that should be enough to get us started. Absolutely. So I guess I guess. Uh, you, you, maybe you could say that that what we're talking about is a kind of issue and say fundamental theology. Right. So the the kind of part of theology that is about reflecting on uh, the nature and sources of revelation, among other things, right? That's not all fundamental theology is about, but that's part of what fundamental theology is about. Uh, and um, it seems to me that there's sort of kind of off and on, you know, maybe in 20th century thought and probably before <laughs> Of it and it's still kind of going on today. There's kind of a, a, a debate about um, sort of how um, how we 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 know God through His self revelation, right? And mm-hmm. um, so and and it seems like the kind of two poles in the debate would be like a more historical pole and a more kind of um, sort of essential conceptual pole, right? So, um, you know, the, 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 the essential conceptual pole would be sort of about, you know, the importance of um, uh, you know, as it were, eternal truths that um, can be grasped in um, essentially kind of valid and so irreformable propositions, right? That that would be one pole. 
Um, and it does seem like like God's self-revelation would have to include something like that, right? Um, right. God tells us about right. himself and so on. Um, and then the other, the other pole is sort of, is, is, as I say, the historical pole, and it kind of has to do with um, the fact that God makes himself known uh, via a kind of personal disclosure of himself that happens in, in time and space, right? That happens through events and so forth. Um, and in, in a way, the, the, the question is sort of like, how do those two, how do those two things go together, right? Um, right? And, you know, you can, you can, it seems to me that you could, you could, you could sort of wrongly emphasize one or the other, right? You could sort of emphasize, um, for example, the historical pole in such a way that you ended up in a kind of, with a kind of modernism, right? The sort of idea right. that th there's, there's um, b basically, uh, the the historical pole, which gets identified with a kind of sort of processual flux, becomes almost the the it sort of absorbs any sense of kind of divine transcendence communicating itself, right? Um, yeah. it, but then there's also maybe a way of wrongly emphasizing the 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 kind of conceptual propositional dimension, where basically revelation just becomes about God telling us stuff that's true, but his own involvement uh, in, in our time and space, his own sort of historical action basically becomes irrelevant so that um, any sense that God revealing himself and us responding has to do with a kind of covenantal, dialogical covenantal kind of relationship between him and us just sort of Right, sort of disappears right. from from the horizon. Um, so, so yeah, so that that that's kind of a, a really rough. I mean, I'm I'm sort of coming to it a bit cold. I I I uh, I should have I should have spent a little bit more time kind of. <laughs> well, I, I guess we all should have, but apologize. no, no. I thought that was great, and immediately because so that it really does lay out the parameters of the it is in, in, in saying you know in describing what we're talking about here that kind of answers already why yeah. it's important yeah and it's important because it's really you know i don't want to get into ecclesiastical issues today but it really hits upon some major controversies yeah. that are going on in the church today about how do we discern the movement of the holy spirit in the church vis-a-vis the truth of revelation what, yeah. in terms of what things are binding, what things are not, what things are yeah. fungible, changeable, what things are not. Uh, and, and so this yeah. is the burning question. Now, I think part of the problem, and then I'll turn it over to the other guys in, in listening to your description, is that you have rightly made, I think, you know, that sort of distinction that we've all made so, since Blondell, you know, right. between the trans the, the transcendent propositional element here and, and the sort of historical Right. Unfolding uh, more subjective element. The, the, the difficulty arises, of course, because even the conceptual element is historical right. Uh, right. and is rooted in that same flux of history, that same same time. So the, the, there has to be, in a sense, this part of the conceptual element that in some way does transcend that flux. And right. the, so the manner uh, of speaking of that transcendence is terribly important here. So I think that ultimately there's a connection between 
the nature of revelation is self-disclosure of God and revelation as uh, propositional, because even the propositional part has got a theodramatic moment. Yeah. Uh, it's got a theodramatic structure to it. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. So you could, you could sort of say that, uh, you know, one of the, the issues that's in play here concerns, you know, the, what, what we mean by development of doctrine. Right. I mean, right. Uh, uh, because it's, it does seem like, uh, you know, there's a, certainly in the life of the church, you know, there's a kind of, um, unfolding of understanding of, you know, the deposit of faith say, right. Right. Um, and, um, uh, so, so the question is sort of, so one question would be, um, is it, is it really an unfolding, which I think it is, uh, or is it just, um, a kind of essentially series of changes you know, um, that aren't, aren't so much unfolding anything as just providing the occasion for, um, people to kind of come up with new ideas or new claims that, you know, may or may not have anything intrinsic to do with the right. right? So that's one question, but then even assuming, which, which I, I mean, which I think is the correct way of thinking about it, that there is a, there is an unfolding. I mean, it's still true that the unfolding happens in time and space, you know, Um, and, you know, you can see that unfolding uh, not, not only in the, in the, in the, in the life of the church, you know, sort of after the, the deposit of, of faith is kind of given over once and for all, you know, when after revelation is over with the death of the last apostle, but you can also see it sort of, for example, in the new Testament itself, right. You can see just the the very fact that um, the new Testament wasn't written down right away, you know, that it was, that, that, that these kind of began to be composed, you know, maybe a couple of decades or something after, you know, the death and resurrection of Christ. So, um, so this unfolding happens in time and space. And so the question is, is that significant? Um, uh, is it, is it, is it, is it, is it just a kind of accidental occasion for the truth to kind of shine more brightly, but aside from it providing that occasion, it it means nothing. Um, or, Or does it, does it, have a, a a more kind of intrinsic or constitutive significance for for how we understand truth without that <clears throat> compromising the fact that there is an original deposit of faith that is a kind of valid self-disclosure of god as he is in himself to us right that would be sort of another a, a way of kind of refining the question a little bit yeah and it's a very important question because i mean as i often say to people uh the kingdom of god is like a mustard seed that then grows into this you know big thing the fact of the matter is is that the mustard shrub tree doesn't look anything like the damn seed 
right. uh, you know, and, and so you'd be you'd be foolish, you know, to 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 think, well, you know, the, obviously this didn't come from a seat. Well, in fact, it did. Uh, right. and, and so this gives the lie to all sort of genetic fallacies and also all forms right. of ecclesial primitivism. Now, that then, though, immediately to the question right. of, of well, the one, you know, what then constitutes, because obviously there's going to be, it's not just change for the sake of change. There's of growth, there's an unfolding, there's an organic yes. development. And yet, what does organically develop? Because you hear this all the time. You hear this all the time. I don't see this in the Bible. I don't see that in the Bible. Or, you know, right. the church of today doesn't look anything like St. Peter wouldn't recognize the church today. Well, actually, I think he would. Uh, right. And, right. and, but and but in some ways that's it's kind of beside the point. Uh, right. So anyway, these are all great questions. I'm gonna yeah. uh, I'm gonna Please, turn it over yeah. to the other two, Rachel, Rodney. Uh, let's start with Rachel, and and then we'll go down to Rodney. Well, I mean, yeah, I think just to, um, it's just kind of interesting, right? Like, I mean, the the genesis of this conversation was actually the I think the first podcast the three of you did together. Right. And um, just to lay Adrian, like you um, <clears throat> said in that one, like, you know, it seems like the way people treat history and the historical mediation of being, it's as if almost it would be somehow like if, you know, we were created and then somehow like, you know, all of our experiences in our life or everything we, all the knowledge that we gained through experience in our life could be transferred into us somehow, like, like a file drop. Right. You know? like and not actually live that life right but still be the same right it right. it would effectively be the same which i mean right. simply can't be the case right um and right. so the you know the interesting thing here you know i mean um uh one of the things um Ferdinand Ulrich says who you know you're all familiar with like he always talks about how the gift of creation, like everything has to be given in the beginning in order for, um, in order for it to unfold. So, I mean, right. the seed, um, and you know, analogy is really good one here, right? Like if right. the seed is somehow missing or lacking something, you right. can put it in the best environment possible, give it all the water and sun necessary, but like nothing's going to happen actually. Yeah. Right. And so the fullness of, of, you know, the plant, so to speak, or the fullness <laughs> gift really has to be there in the beginning, um, not as a limit to the creature, right? Like, because I think sometimes um, we think of it as almost like, because because we have a bad understanding of freedom, we think, oh, everything being given in the beginning somehow limits us. But actually, like, if we think about it again with the, the analogy of the seed, to be given sort of the given the capacity to enact ourselves and unfold everything is yeah. not a limit. It is actually the prerequisite for freedom itself, right. actually. Like, so for, right. in order for creation to be free, right. Um, God actually does have to sort of give everything um, right. like from the beginning, like this, the yeah. entire capacity to be and to unfold oneself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, again, we think of it as a constraint, a lot of times that like, because, because, because we think of freedom as sort of like this wide open, you know, non, uh, Talos directed thing, right. right? Um, we think of being given everything as a constraint when it's, it's actually the exact opposite. Yeah. Can I just, can I just a quick parenthesis? That's really great, Rachel. And, and I mean, it, it, uh, brings up for me, a, a, a related point, which is that, um, you know, 
you'll see a plant or an animal um, be faithful to its developmental path precisely by um, responding to and mastering circumstances, events, contingencies that are sort of beyond its control, right? So, you know, all of the things that sort of happen in the history of the church, um, as it were, from the outside, um, which which call forth a response, um, can, if you if you're not looking at things deeply enough, be interpreted as a kind of essentially deterministic story in which uh, the church just becomes the kind of passive product of these things that have happened to it. Um, whereas actually, if, if we are talking about, you know, the mustard seed unfolding itself, which is, is, is intended by Jesus Christ. I mean, the Lord says that the kingdom of God is going to be like that, that the church is going to be like that. It's founded to be like that then you can expect that, yes, there are all kinds of things that are going to happen, as it were, from the outside, from the inside. Again, those things are actually accounted for. We see that in the Gospels, the way that Christ speaks about, you know, coming persecutions and all of the rest of it. Um, so, but, but in other words, it's like all of those things are, are, are indeed going to happen and then in this theodramatic way that Larry was talking about, um, the, 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 the church is going to be faithful to its developmental path. So it's sort of like taking account of and, and even using these events as an occasion to kind of unfold itself further, right? So yeah. there doesn't have to be any contradiction between, you know, the craziness of history, which is, is sort of what, what historians seem to focus on most of all, and a kind of basic fidelity forward, which is also, you know, as Kierkegaard and Ulrich yeah. say, a kind, of repetition, <clears throat> a kind of repetition backwards towards the origin. Yeah. And by, yeah, exactly. And by the theodramatic element, I'm, I'm thinking here of, of Balthazar's, you know, theologic, you know, the, 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 yeah. the, the, the end of the trilogy. And uh, the explication of that you find in people like David C. Schindler's, uh, I guess it was his doctoral dissertation, but it's a great book. Right. You know, yeah. the, the, uh, the theodramatic structure of truth. Yeah. Uh, that's this. And, and, and you're sort of hinting at that. But uh, before I go on with that, yeah, and, yes, and I thought right. what Rachel said was great, too. And I had something I want to say about that from an article I just read in the Thomist, which is fantastic. Rodney, mm. you go ahead. No, I can only just kind of, you know, pick up some loose pieces of what you all have already kind of said so beautifully, but <clears throat> if you think, you can think about it both in terms of sort of the church, right, mustard seed and all that, but also in, in terms of like a, an individual's mission, right? right? So, yeah. so and, and kind of what Rachel was saying about, I, I mean, I, that passage in Paul that, that, that comes to mind always is, you know, sort of weirders workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared for us in advance, right? And then yeah. I think in, in the context, it's, maybe it's in the same passage. I, I'm I, I'm no longer a Protestant, so I can't remember. But um, but it's something <laughs> along the lines of uh, set your minds uh, above where Christ is seated at the right hand. Yeah, of the Colossians. Yeah, because you have died and your life is hidden there, right? So so right. so on the one hand, it's exactly what you just said, Adrian. Um, 
it's it's already there from the beginning, right? With the mission that we have, but, but kind of on the other hand, because we're we're we are creatures who are becoming, you know, we're 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 right. creatures from dust and and all of that. Yeah, um, we have to live out that mission and and the various things that happened to us in history aren't just therefore um sort of just one darn thing after another or whatever they 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 literally uh give rise in in our in our individual cases to us discovering our mission and either living up to it or not living up to it that's right so so sometimes like even even like really difficult things that we go through, in fact, usually really difficult things that we can throw through yeah. are, are precisely the things that might oh, yeah. up. I mean, if you think of Frodo, you know, sitting yeah. in, his, in his in his shire eating his cheese and drinking his beer, I mean, that's a good life. And then there's this crisis that yeah, you know, kind of that he's like, oh, I just I discovered my mission. And just to quickly tie this in with like current church events, which we were talking about just a little bit before, um, you know, so, some of the the bishops who are responding to more troubling things said by other bishops it's almost like finally they're finding their voices and and, right. and of course it's their mission of, of, to, to defend the faith and to yeah. and it's and to say things that are going to make them unpopular and 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 it, and it takes an act of courage etc cetera, etc cetera, because you know who knows what might happen um but that's almost like it takes these crises in a way not that the crises are good in themselves of course but it takes these kind of crises to Absolutely. help discover what was there from the beginning, et cetera. And I, and I think yeah. that, you know, shed some light on, on some of this. Yeah. If I could just say, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, this is, this is, this, this is all great. And I mean, <clears throat> what you're saying underlines among other things, the importance of seeing the story of the church, the story of our individual lives, the, the story of humanity as a providentially crafted story in which we participate. And uh, our participation does seem to unite these aspects of sort of having to deal with things that come from the outside that are beyond our control. Um, Some of those things are unpleasant, but that doesn't mean that having to deal with things outside of our control is a bad thing. On the contrary, it's a way of, it, it's, it's, it's an opportunity for us, a God-given opportunity, literally, uh, to um, basically get out of our heads, you know? And, yeah. and then, so there's that. And then on the other side, um, you know, to, to, because it's an opportunity to get out of our heads, um, it's also an opportunity to rise to the occasion, right? And in a Christian economy, rising to the occasion is a is a matter of trust, but it's also a matter of a kind of spiritedness, you know, a kind of thematic engagement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I really do think that, um, as you say, um, and, and this is completely in line with what Rachel was saying at the beginning, that uh, the sort of trustful thematic engagement with these unforeseen things that draw us out of ourselves uh, becomes the opportunity for laying hold of uh, in a sort of new and at the same time faithful way of what of what was 
what was there from the beginning, but there not not as Rachel was saying, not as a a, a, a kind of a fixed fate, um, but um, pre precisely as as something whose whose very initial givenness sort of requires uh, this kind of unfolding because it's not it's not just dropped into a void, but it's 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 sort of covenantally given, you know, and. Uh the, 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 I'm, I'm reminded, uh, and I want to come back to Rachel here in a second. Uh, so don't despair, Rachel. I saw you writing furiously over there, so you must have tons to say. So I want to avail ourselves of your wisdom here. But I am reminded in this conversation of, of, uh, of Blondell's famous uh, statement that he defined truth as the conformity of the mind to life. Uh, rather than right. the conformity. And of course, he took it on the chin for that. Oh, right. There you, there you go, you Hegelian troglodyte, uh, you for, you know, modernist pig. For, right. For, but, but this, it seems to me, is exactly what Blondell was saying. Uh, you know, that, 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 that truth, you, you know, truth cannot simply be reduced down to a set of timeless ahistorical abstractions uh, in the realm of the concept. Though Those are very, very important, of course. I'm not just paying lip service to that. Yeah. But this, di this dynamical element of truth is precisely something that, that had been ignored in the church for a long time. And that's exactly what then allowed the modernists to co-opt the conversation precisely because it had not been attended to uh, uh, properly. And then the second thing I want to say, too, before we, I, I pass this off to Rachel, is one of the things, too, that we know from, and I, Rodney, I love your comments about mission, because one of the things we know about in our personal lives about living our missions uh, is that our lives are not linear. It's more like an Ariadne's thread weaving its way through a labyrinth more than it is a straight line, linear development of A to Z. Now, once in a while, you see that in a person at age three, they're already composing concertos on their you know, piano. And then all of a sudden they're a prodigy by the time they're five and stuff like that. Okay, fine. Those, those nerds, notwithstanding uh, the fact is most of our lives, we write straight with crooked lines. And, and, and that, that means that, there, that, that as life unfolds, even in our even in our own lives, there are going to be scars. There are going to be uh, scars that are redeemed, scars that are transformed, but scars that remain and deformities and distortions and and and, and residual forms of ugliness, quite frankly. Uh, and as we as we look into our own lives, we see this. That's why we still go to confession post baptism. So my point is that that I, even though I know I'm not guaranteed indefectibility or infallibility in my personal life in the way the church is, the fact is the church is guaranteed those things in a very uh, limited way. Let's put it that way. So my point would be as the church unfolds revelation, like the mustard seed to the tree, as it goes along in history, it is also a church of sinners. And therefore, these kinds of these kinds of distortions, these kinds of scars, these kinds of permanent uh, sort of wounds in the church are, are going to remain and, and remain for quite a while. And, and and this is part of, I think, the theodramatic structure, the church, because the church is in her core, sanctified, uh, because, you, know, you get my point, but, but, but also she remains a church of sinners. But anyway, uh, that's just food for meditation down the road. 
Rachel, I want to come back to you now for my for my readers and, and, and viewers and stuff. I'm going to be interviewing Rachel next week on a wonderful article she had in the okay. latest issue of Comunio uh, called The Flesh, the, the Flesh. All right. And uh, her, I'm also going to be interviewing tomorrow Michael Dominic Taylor on his article in here. But uh, Matter is Revelation is your article. So I don't want to anticipate that too much. But I want to, it goes back to something you said, Rachel, about Ulrich and then about uh, something Adrian just said. I was just reading a great article in the Thomist. I just recently subscribed to the Thomist just so I could get some back electronic issues. Okay. <laughs> so, but they make you they make you subscribe to the whole darn thing. But anyway, so I did. But I'm glad I did, because in the latest issue of the Thomist is a great article by a guy named Michael Higgins called the gratuitous as necessary and do. And he begins actually by quoting Nicholas Healy. Uh, it's all about De Lubach and, 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 the, and you'd be interested in Rachel, if you don't know the article already in the second half of the article, he's discussing Ulrich. And for my viewers, I mean, Rachel did her doctoral dissertation on Ferdinand Ulrich. So and, and in essence, the long story short, Higgins point is that uh, in order to properly understand what De Lubach is up to, we need to take another look at what we mean by gratuitous, uh, that the gratuitous doesn't necessarily rule out the required or the necessary and the due, which is in some ways what you were hinting at a little bit, Adrian, when, when you were talking about how there's there's this unfolding, but also there's a kind of requirement yeah. of certain things. But anyway, Rachel, that's I'm 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 just sort of. Uh, sort of free spinning things here. Now I'm going to turn it over to you to say whatever you want to see. You can respond to what I just said, part or in whole or something the other said. And go, so go ahead. Yeah. I mean, well, a couple of things. The first thing I just want to say is like, you know, um, it was, it struck me earlier as you were sort of talking about even just confession and sort of how that fits into all of this. Right. Like, um, yeah, it's just, it's so interesting how like, the sort of dialectic that Adrian set up at the beginning of this, right? Like, you know, yeah. it's just sort of yeah. historical or it's just sort of ideas or something like that. I mean, if if one is honest, one just has to sort of admit that like life doesn't conform to either one of those, right? Um, you know, theories, exactly. so to speak. Right. Um, because, uh, yeah, like, on the one hand, if it's sort of just history, then we're sort of bumbling about without being directed at all. And like even sort of um, subhuman life just do cannot do such a thing, right? Like it's just, it's it's like literally impossible, right? But on the other hand, like life wouldn't exist without, you know, without history and without um, at all. And then and then you have the church sort of taking, to, taking exactly this into account that it can't be either or right because like something like confession would actually be impossible if it was one of those two options e either one actually right like you need both the eternal truth and this and this um like playing out in the sort of freedom to play out in history so um that just kind of struck me but i mean at the risk of you know being very one note um but it is sort of my thing i mean like as all as all of you guys were speaking you know the thing of course for me that keeps coming up is you know, space and time, or it's like, you know, sp time, space and matter essentially, or, you know, and, and space and matter, uh, sort of an, in, you know, interesting to sort of distinguish between the two of them, but right. That this, that right. Creation is given 
both time and space, right, in order to unfold, right? I mean, in fact, like when we sort of cannot help but think about unfolding without thinking about um, time and space. And um, it just kind of struck me, um, this idea of participation in ideas, right, or in truth, right? Um, to, to participate precisely means to be other than, actually, right? Like, because, you know, you can't participate in something if you're exactly the same as it, right? Like it, so to participate actually, like precisely means to be other. And in order to be other there, I mean, there has to be this, um, you know, to be other than, right? Has There has to be sort of time and space in which to do that actually, right? Um, and so, yeah, I guess um, the thing that I have just been thinking the whole time is, you know, this, this, gift that we call creation or that I understand creation to be, you know, um, necessarily requires this uh, sort of externalization that we kind of call time, time and space, right? Um, and, uh, you know, um, it's interesting because like, we, you know, um, in, in uh, the Timaeus, Plato, Plato calls Cora, he calls it like a womb, basically. And I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, uh, Cora is kind of like both time, but like space and matter a little bit. And, you know, the thing about a womb is like, on at the beginning, it doesn't look like anything at all, right? Like, in you know, in a woman's body, like, it's not like you can see the fact that she has a womb. And then but then like, you know, once a child is in there, once the, the other is is there, right, it always had to be that way. And so like, there's this it almost seems like it's, I mean, to go to um, Mike Higgins point, like the gratuitous, right. The child almost seems necessary after the fact, right. Like, and so, right. but like what, what enabled the child to be there from the beginning was, was like totally hidden at the beginning. And it seems to me this, this idea of like historical mediation of being, mm. you know, the reason we can kind of take it for granted almost is because it, it sort of feels like, Oh, it always had to be that way. But like the capacity for, being to be mediated historically, right? It like is there from the beginning in creation. And um, it's something we take for granted, but actually um, the gratuitous is sort of necessary to tie it up with with uh, Mike Higgins' point, yeah. yeah. You're familiar with the Higgins article, Rachel? I'm familiar with Mike Higgins. DC Schindler's brother-in-law. Really? Yeah, <laughs> I did not. Oh, geez. Shows how ignorant I am. I'm sitting here. I, I get this thing in the mail. So that's an interesting title to an article. And I'm reading along and I, I wonder who this Michael Higgins guy is. Oh, geez. My we were, we, now we don't, I feel foolish that I didn't know that this was DC Schindler's brother-in-law. Oh, we, we yes, overlapped yes. a bit at the at the JP2 Institute. So, yeah. What's that? We overlapped a bit um, in, at the JP2 Institute. So. Yeah. Well, that's very good. So no he's wonder why guy. he's a good guy. I mean, it, he's a good guy and smart guy and interesting guy for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe I should get him on here someday. Yeah. Uh, so that that brings me uh, to uh, uh, everything you just said, Rachel, spurred in my mind a question, which is we're talking about the historical mediation of being. And here we, we mean sort of the historical mediation of God's uh, self-revelation of being as such in time and history, you know, the timeless one, and I don't think God is timeless, so to speak. 
in a in a primitive sort of way. Uh, but nevertheless, that's that's a different conversation. Uh, the the thing is, the question arises: What is being mediated? Not just in terms of well, being is media, being mediated. God's being mediated in time and history. Well, what is that? Uh, and it strikes me uh, that in a Christian register, in particular, that we need to say that what is being mediated is Christ. Uh, and in many ways, the Paschal Christ, the, the, the cruciform Christ, which, which, which means there has to be, we, we actually, we began with Rodney, I mean, Rodney Adrian saying, you know, that there, there's got to be a constitutive reason why God, God does this through time and history. And it has always struck me when I think about this is that there is a kenotic almost cruciform element to our living in time and in history. And I don't mean just that bad things happen to us. I mean that there is a complete inability for us to grasp at the moment, to grasp at time. There is this constant flux between Heraclitus and Parmenides. We have this, on one hand, this longing for transcendence, to grab it, to grasp it, to acquire it. All right. On the other hand, we cannot because it is not given to us to know truth like that. It is given to us to know it piecemeal, partially uh, in, in ways that come and go that that, you know, the, that moment that comes to you. And then you think I mean, I should write that down and then it's gone. And you forget, oh, crap, I forgot all about that. Uh, and, 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 and so there is a death like quality to our experience all the time. And I don't just mean we're all trending towards biological death. I mean, the moment that was just before is completely gone in some sense. And yet what is coming is, is actually already now here uh, and yet not. And so you get my point. There is this almost crucifixion in, in our experience uh, of life as lived through time and history. And yet also at the same time, a great joy. Uh, so th- those are just some thoughts off the top of my head about it. So, Rodney, I want to I want to turn it over to you. You don't have to respond to that uh, genius insight on my part or, <laughs> or not. Right. Uh, Can I just say something before you go, Rodney? Sorry, yes, to, please. To, like to reply to that, Larry. Like, I mean, the, the interesting thing about it is. I mean, and I, I don't think that I think this goes along with your point that it's cruciform, right? Like um, on the one hand, it's. uh it, you know, like you said, we can, sort of can't grasp it. And there, you know, there's the, perf- you know, if, if the, if the moment is sort of perfect, we can't hold on to it, whatever, or how, right. you know, however you might put it. But on the other hand, it's precise. It's precisely in time and space that we can be given like perfections in each moment, actually, right? That like one, one moment, I mean, and we could, I mean, the whole discussion of time is another thing, right? Because what is it exactly, right? But like one moment could have kind of can't hold all of the perfections that there, there are to be given and to be seen and to be received in creation. And so, you know, on the one hand, it's, you know, it, it's cruciform and canonic and you kind of can't, you can't hold on to those moments. And on the other hand, it's such a, it's such a gift that like, we're sort of like time is given this capacity, so to speak, to, to, to keep holding successive perfections, right. Um, within it. Um, and, and again, like, I, I don't think that contradicts your point about it being cruciform, it rather sort of supports that. Um, but there's two ways to, to look at that actually. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Uh, this point is made brilliantly by the late, great David L. Schindler. Uh, in his book, you know, um, heart, 
heart of the world, center of the church, uh, the great, great essay in there in time and eternity, where he talks about T.S. Eliot and he talks about this cruciform nature of, of our experience of time of life uh, is, is precisely what the saints understood. It's precisely what the, so it goes to what you're saying, Rachel, this, the saints were able to grasp um, it through their lives, but also in their intellects. Uh, precisely this dynamic that you were talking about. But anyway, Rodney, go, go ahead. Yeah, I, so this will take us into some, I don't know if new waters, but, but you know, sort of, you know, risky waters sure. or whatever, but it seems to me that um, the, the, those in the church who reject, who have a tendency to reject or who are uncomfortable with the historicity or historical mediation, um, I think also have a, a concept of the nature of God that sort of goes with that uh, that thing, and 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 you know, in Balthazar's you know sort of um, allegation would be that there's an insufficient recognition of how radical the Trinity changes our concept of God, right? So 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 that already in God. the divinity is, is in some weird sense mediated in three different ways. Right. You know, so, so, so the, I mean, and, and there's no uh, grasping after it to be not mediated in three different ways, if, if you can put it that way. Right. So, so the fact that like the incarnate son does not, um, he becomes incarnate precisely because he does not see equality with the father as something to be grasped after. Right. So there would be something, I think in a kind of, um, a historical, strictly propositional understanding of truth, which would be a kind of grasping at having all the thing at once in a kind of sure way, so precisely, I don't have to uh, experience any difference, any disconnect, you know, at all, right? So, so that my my mission would be laid out in advance. I would know every step I have to take. I would take it exactly as the, you know, got, you know. I, I sometimes yeah. kind of I'm amused at how little Jesus told the disciples that he could have told them like one thing for instance like hey jews don't have to be circ or i'm sorry gentiles coming into the church don't have to be circumcised like i'm like you have 40 days after the resurrection to tell the disciples this <laughs> like well, why don't you tell them that you know but precisely right. they need to come they need to come to understand why it's the case that gentiles don't need to be circumcised who are coming into the church right and there's something about the faith that's been given to them that already has the secret to why it's the case but if but if it's just given to them they don't discover it there's not really not really they don't really know it in the what is uh newman makes the dis distinction between um uh, a notional ascent and, and real ascent yes so if, if 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 everything were laid out we would have all these notional ascents to all these propositions but we wouldn't have like Paul doing this beautiful thing where he's finding out why it's okay these people are being received into the church without being circumcised. And I think, I think in some sense, what I guess I'm trying to say in a convoluted way probably is that this has to be rooted in the very nature of God somehow, because it can't just be opposite. It can't just be that God is totally right. one way and, and all of us are totally another, because that's not the analogy of being. That's I don't, it's dialectic or it's something, it's something, Adrian could probably tell me what it is, but it's not, I don't think it's analogy in the proper sense. So those are just some thoughts. Those are good thoughts. And I like those thoughts because it, it set, certainly drags in then uh, Trinitarian theology, 
which of course is lurking in the background of all of these conversations about the historical mediation of being, uh, the nature of the Trinitarian relations and, and what, what Trinitarian ontology best underwrites this project that, that, that we're talking about here, this interplay of, 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 of truth and, and, and historicity. Uh, and that's why I sort of began too, Roddy, by talking a little bit about the theodramatic structure of truth, because this is embedded in, in the very nature of the Trinity as such, as, as a perichoretic set of infinite relations that involve, Rachel, you said that, you know, participation can in some sense only take place at a distance. Uh, and it sort of, that's certainly true of, of creaturely participation, but that's its ground of possibility is precisely in the distinctions within the Godhead, as Balthazar says, infinite distance bridged with an infinite, an infinite unity. Uh, uh, we we think now that we that we understand difference and distinction, we don't even begin to understand what difference and distinction actually really mean, until we're going to encounter difference and distinction in God in an infinite register that has been overcome. Uh, through perichoretic love. I mean, I don't want to get it too deep into all of the uh, uh, the subtleties of Trinitarian theology because I would get myself in hot water anyway. It's been a while uh, uh, for me, but I but I but I agree with with, with all of that all of that, uh, Rodney. Uh, does anybody want to respond to what Rodney said or anything I just said, uh, Rachel, Adrian? Uh, maybe I could just throw in a thought that seems relevant to what you guys have just said and connects back to uh, the seed analogy uh, as Rachel developed it. And um, that would be the, the notion of fruitfulness, which is of course, you know, rooted in the gospels. And uh, I suppose, you know, I mean, we, we all know, right. That in John's gospel, Christ, um, seems very invested in the disciples bearing much fruit. Um, and I suppose we could, we could, I think a lot of us would probably spontaneously think that that fruit is sort of basically merits, you know, it's basically um, things that are, that are sort of meritorious for salvation. And, th and that's, that's doubtless also the case, right? That's doubtless also the case. But it could be that um, that there's also a relation to, uh, there's a relationship between fruitfulness and truth. Um, and uh, if so, then, then that would sort of tie back into um, this, this kind of Trinitarian point that you guys are making because um, you know, it's not as if, it's not as if the, the, the sun's having divinity or the spirits having divinity sort of adds a missing piece to <laughs> yeah. the divinity of the father. Um, and yet nobody would say that, uh, it's sort of, um, superfluous, you know, that, that there be the sun and the spirit. I mean, uh, it, it seems that, uh, in fact, you could, you could think of, you know, the, the procession of the sun, the generation of the sun with St. Bonaventure, you could think of it as, 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 uh, 
as he says, sort of unfolding. He uses the word, the verb explicare. It unfolds the, um, the kind of fontal, what he calls the fontal plenitude of the father. So, so it, it sort of unfolds, uh, as Bonaventure says, the, the fontal plenitude, but then that also means that he somehow unfolds his own, the son, the son's unfolds his own generation and, and the procession of the Holy Spirit from the, the kind of ground of the Father, from this fontal plenitude. Um, so it's sort of like there's a, there's a full, you know, consubstantial participation, if you want to use that language, on the part of the Son in uh, precisely unfolding, unfurling the fruitfulness of the Father so that... Um, there aren't two fruitfulnesses, but that doesn't mean that the fruitfulness is limited to just one person and then the father and then the other two are just sort of kind of passive results. I mean, they're, they're actually in, I mean, the son is actually right, right. involved in, in, you know, explicating the fruitfulness of the father um, to the point of then of also being involved in, in co-spirating the Holy Spirit um, and, and it's, and, and you sort of see that you see that, I mean, this again is something Ulrich really developed. So, so Rachel could tell us a lot about this, but I mean, you know, you, you sort of see that all the way down, you know, you, you see, you see, um, creation is a bit like that, you know, I mean, God, uh, in his generosity, not only gives things to be, but he gives things to, um, to sort of unfold their being. And yep. therefore, kind of cooperate in manifesting his own creative purposes for them, and so on. Right? Um, I think you kind of see that all the way down the line. And I and I, I also think that you you see, um, sort of adumbrations of this way of looking at things in in Plato, you know, in Plato and Aristotle. So, like today, I was thinking about, you know, kind of in my philosophy of nature class, I was thinking about the work afterwards, actually, I was thinking about the way in which, uh, you know, Aristotle defines na nature, fusis, as a kind of principle, as a kind of arche. Um, and uh, in another passage, he says, that's what God is. God is the arche from which nature and, and the universe depend or on which nature and the universe depend. So, um, so he's all arche, God is all arche, um, in this Trinitarian way, of course, that we were talking about. Um, but because he's pure act, right? But we're, we're, not, we're not all arche ourselves, and yet we have one in ourselves. And um, it's sort of that that arche, that, that principle, that source that we have in ourselves is kind of, in one sense, it's divided between um, a sort of given material basis for us to start from um, on the one hand, and then a kind of um, activity of starting on the other hand that we're the subjects of but the kind of absolutely amazing thing to me is that for a 
you know, a body that has a, a thing, a substance that has a, a nature in this particular sense, um, it both is the, 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 the subject that by way of a kind of imminent activity uh, sets itself in motion somehow. I mean, it's true even in an extended sense of inanimate things. Um, and it's also the material base, and it, it itself also is the material basis from which it starts and in which it expresses itself. So, so that actually a, it would have been better, um, you know, in, in sort of explaining the relation between matter and form, if Aristotle had, had used the example not of a, um, a, a, a sculpture, but of a dancer, because if you if you look at a dancer who who is sort of doing, you know, is is like I've I've been watching a little bit of sort of classical Indian dance on YouTube and and it's really amazing. It's it's mostly women it seems that do this, and th their entire body is in motion, directly or indirectly. Um, and at the same time, so so. Uh, Th their body is the material, but they're also the ones doing the dancing. So that, so that, so that you see what I'm getting at is that is that yeah, absolutely that e even for Aristotle, like a a natural body, um, which is is the the the, the uh, you know has a principle of motion in itself of motion and change in itself. Um, uh, sort of is is like a, a self-subjective matter that um, uh, in being such sort of reveals something of of what it means for God to be arche, to be source but but in in this kind of good otherness right that that then like as Rachel says yeah. sort of downstream involves you know, uh, extension and, you know, in space and, and, and also in, in, in time. And, um, and, and you have to ask, well, what's the point of that? Well, the point of that, first of all, is just generosity, right? So that, so that, um, but, but, but think about that, that the, the, the logos of the, of the, of the, of the natural thing, the logos of its nature, um, is, is sort of made to be kind of unfurled by the thing in it, in this kind of self-subjective, um, self-subjectively material kind of possession of, of our heyhood of sourcehood in itself, you know, and, the, and there's, a, yeah, there's a kind of fruitfulness there, right. There's a kind of principle of fruitfulness there. And that, that means something that, that, and, and that fruitfulness, just to tie it together to what I said at the beginning, is perhaps you, you could see it not only in the register of the, of the good, which you have to, but also in the register of the true and, and, and also in the register of the beautiful, right, insofar as it involves a kind of self-manifestation, you know, from, from, from the inside. Anyway, that's a bunch of things kind of. Well, actually, know. that that was brilliant. I loved I was just riveted by that. That was uh, for those listeners. That was uh, 
that was 10 minutes of, of graduate level uh, erudition right there. Rodney, I mean, Rodney, God, I keep calling Adrian Rodney. I guess I think hey, you guys I, I'll take that compliment interchangeable <laughs> somehow. Yeah. Uh, does anybody that. want to respond? Uh, I, I, I kind of want to shift gears Rodney, here in a minute, you're muted. but uh, but let's go with Rodney. Rodney, you're muted. <laughs> hey, sorry. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, I just want to do a, just a quick follow up question on that. And then I'm glad to shift gears. But so, Adrian, just a, a couple of things of, of by way of clarification. Um, yeah, because, yeah, I, it was sort of like a, a probably a series of associative leaps. So I well, hope, no, uh, no, it's super interesting stuff at the end. It seems to me that about so kind of like. Um, kind of getting to the point that sort of matter is is not just sort of um <clears throat> uh passively receiving form or something like that but there's a kind of almost is there it, it, like a maybe a readiness and then matter already yeah. has something in it that's going to perform the way it receives the form and sort of all that stuff in, in an interesting uh, way that's not yes. predictable so, so to speak so am, am i on two different zooms yeah you're all of a sudden on two different screens here can, can you get me off can you get me off of one there, you can kick him out of. Just kick one of them off. Right, right. I'm, yeah, the I'm. With the lowercase letters. He looks like E. Cummings in that one. There you go. That's better. Yeah. Okay. Um, there, there we go. Okay. Gotcha. Thank you, so, Rachel. Rachel. I like how Rachel immediately chimed in, knowing that I'm a complete luddite. That I would. A, at, at that moment, I was panicking because I thought <laughs> I have no freaking idea how to do yeah. anything about this. Okay, I just click the Zoom button and then it goes. <laughs> You know, it's like a gas pedal in a car. Don't ask me to fix the Johnson rod. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, I don't know what that is. Uh, I just hit the gas pedal, right? And it moves. So anyway, I, I okay. Yeah, so, so that was it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Adrian. So, just a quick so, follow right, up. So, oh, so go ahead. So, so, right. So, oh, you, you were going to ask a question. Go ahead. Well, yeah, just, yeah. So just a follow up that, that is, is related. So to, to give me, help me with the analogy a little bit, right. like, um, I mean, there's a is I, I'm assuming there's a choreographer involved yes. in the dance, right? So yeah. So and and this would be it reminds me a little bit of like jazz music where you you yes. you're going to do a tune, yes. There you go, nice, yeah. Yeah, yeah and and the song sort of has the the role of act to potency to some degree, right? So we're going to do my yeah. favorite things or whatever. But then there's there's a way in which John Coltrane is going to play my favorite things. It's going to be very different, yes. probably from some That's you know right. Oscar Peterson or something, you know or whatever. And is that is, am I on the right page there? Or yeah. yes, you 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 are as far as I'm concerned. So I mean, as to the first point, um, I would say yeah. There's there there has to be. You have to think of matter as to do with a certain readiness. Yeah. Um, uh, we think of matter, I think, primarily as um, a kind of spatialized arrangement. Um, and then any movement um, we think of as sort of accidentally happening between the, the parts of the arrangement, you know. Um, but, and, you know, any, any natural body, uh, at any given moment is going to have um, some kind of, it's going to have and even depend on having some kind of arrangement. But um, that's not 
so so that's shall we say a necessary manifestation of the essence of matter but it's not in and of itself the essence of matter and and you know the essence of matter would have to do much more with um something that plato already saw which Ra rachel referred to you know that ma matter is this kind of womb like um you know affording of uh place cora, for cora, yeah, the chorus. So anyway, so I'll let Rachel kind of go into that more. But in terms of the second point, uh, you're absolutely on the money as far as I'm concerned, because so if, if I may, just, to, just to, to go on for a minute or two to give a little background. So I'm, 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 I'm struck by the way in which Aristotle says that in, in, of other places, but I just most immediately chapter three of book two of the physics that um, there's a way in which uh, the form of artistry uh, is more the cause of the, the product than the, the individual mm. artist. Be, and, and you could see why he would say that if you, especially if you think of sort of like a traditional art form, mm -hmm. um, like this Indian dancing, where um, you just have to give yourself over in readiness, right? And there would be this sort of readiness of matter um, to embody both the form of the artistry and the, 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 the choreography, or at least the canons of choreography in a kind of selfless way, right? And, 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 you know, so many of the artists, even the modern kind of artists whom we love do, do that in some way, you know. Um, and so, so, that, so that would be it. So it's like you, you um, yeah, there's a way that, that mastery of the, the, dance for, the, the dance artistry and the choreography um, is, is, is like embodying it in a kind of selfless manner. That, that's the paradox, that seems paradoxical. Now, it seems to me that um, uh, embodying the form, whether the artistry or the choreography in this kind of selfless manner, which is mastery, um, enables uh, exactly the sort of thing that we were talking about relative to the church at the beginning, right? A kind of um, basic fidelity to the canons together with improvisation, right? Mm -hmm. And and as a matter of fact, now I don't know much about Indian dancing but or, or music, classical Indian music, but it does seem like um, in, in a lot of classical Indian music, you have these given canons and then the masters of these canons will will do these improvisations, um, but they'll never violate the canons, you know. And 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 you know. So so that's how I would I would think about it. And and so so it's sort of again to also tied to Rachel's point at the beginning. Um, you know, there's a there's it's sort of like. Uh, the, the 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 dancer or the or the, the the piano player or whatever it is the jazz player is completely given over 
um, and 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 has been trained in given over to and trained into um, being kind of like as an agent being almost like a kind of living exponent of the art and of the and of the canons as as if as if he were giving them a personality um to sort of manifest themselves in right um and yet in doing that he's anything but a slave he's a master yeah um and 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 um it's precisely that um type of of obedient mastery to the canons um which in some sense remain immovable like the canons of of yes of, right that he's able to sort of improvise and and that improv pro, improvisation can take can can take uh, you know uh, can take a beautiful account of you know everything that's happening around him or or her you know who, whoever is the the artist right so yeah I think that's well, a great but, example and and the canons remain so it kind of this kind of then sh shifts to the sort of what I wanted to shift gears into because I can hear all of my uh, viewers and, and podcast listeners, a cut to the chase. Does this mean that right. the church can contradict herself? Does no. this mean that God is doing a new thing now uh, that we can just sort of, you know, freestyle our way uh, into the ever-changing future of the church of the amazing now and all that kind of stuff? Obviously not. So I like what you said, the canons remain. The canons yeah. remain even in the midst of all They're of this. Well, in the midst of all of this improvisation. Yeah. So this raises the issue then a development of doctrine, what it means. Precisely. Uh, what does it mean when the church is going to change and evolve? Uh, it certainly simply cannot mean that the canons are what uh, whatever the hell we say they are now, uh, or that we can just dismiss with them altogether, because after all, uh, God is a God of surprises, as as yes something and i'm sorry for i forgive me you guys for talking so much but i'll just say this and then i'll, I'll stop i mean actually you know i'm glad we had this conversation because i actually think that the 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 kind of no notion of of becoming a master within an artistic tradition um especially where the yeah. tra tradition is traditional like you know classical indian dancing or uh you know gregorian chant you know um or icon painting i think that actually really helps to to sort of so that um yes it, and and again it goes right back to what rachel said at the beginning i mean she just nailed the principle right at the beginning which is um it's precisely the total Obe not only obedience to, but sort of complete interiorization of the canons as in some sense, utterly immovable um, that enables um, uh, a kind of improvisational riffing. Yeah, exactly. That, that will, that A, won't violate the canons ever and B will actually contribute um, in yes. precisely in fruitful ways to our, our appreciation of the canons and of, of the 
the kind of manifestation of God's truth that the, the canons enable. Yeah, because it, and that it's precisely actually better art, better music, better yes. dancing and so on, precisely because of that dynamic. If there are no canons, if I'm just if everything is just freestyling turtles all the way down, OK, right. then all of a sudden it becomes boring, banal, pointless, uh, that there's no longer any mastery there of anything. Uh, right. it, it goes back to some of the debates that were had in the, in the mid 20th century about music and musicality, you know, the, the rejection of classical understandings in favor of, you know, a more cacophonous, non-rule based approach to music, John Cage and stuff like yeah. that. But anyway, Rachel, you've been chafing at the bit to say something, and I don't want to ignore the lone female voice here. Uh, so um, please, please go well, ahead. Just, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. Maybe this is stretching too much. I, I don't think it is, but I mean, just um, unpacking Adrian's points a little bit. I mean, the, okay, so if the dancer is the form, right, kind of, but also the canons of the form, you know, it's yeah. sort of, um, and then, you know, the, it's just so interesting, you know, in your example of a dancer, but I think this could be true of any art, yeah. right? Um, which is, I want to give Aristotle back some credit for using the sculpture um, analogy, but um, <laughs> sure. Like, oh, sure, Rachel. But, sure, no, sure. no. Um, but you know, um, you know, one of the reasons we we use you know artifice to talk to try and explain form yeah. and matter is because it's easier to see the distinction between right. two, right? Yeah. But but in the best kind of art. Right. And yes. I mean that term super broadly. Yes. Um, the form and the matter sort of meld into each other, they right? Or one, right? Um, and so like the form <clears throat> gives itself over to the matter. So it, using your dancer analogy, right. right? Like the like you don't see a difference between the dancer and the dance, actually, right? That's like right. at all. Yeah. Um and when you do see the difference between form and matter is actually when it's done somewhat poorly, right? right. And then matter, I mean, again, this is analogous language, but matter hasn't actually given itself over to form and vice versa, form hasn't given itself over right. to matter, right? Well, if we take that analogy and sort of move it to development of doctrine and the, and the right. church, right? Like we, the reason we see the straining is because we haven't sort of given over actually, right? Like right. we haven't fully, like both, like we haven't fully submitted really. Yeah. Right. Um, and so um, it yeah. seems like it's different when it actually shouldn't be. And we're all experiencing that tension in a way that like bad art shows the tension, like the, you know, the matter is almost like rebelling against the form or, and the form hasn't, qu doesn't quite understand the matter actually in like a bad sculpture or something like that. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. So it's like, again, like we, we talk about these things, you know, and we, and they're, we should, they're distinct. The principles are distinct form and matter, but like in the best examples, both in natural things and in artifice, like, you actually can't see a, a, the difference. Well, that's that's right because the the danced body is the dancing body. Right. Right. And and I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and you and and I mean, this puts me in mind of Balthazar's wonderful essay on theology and holiness in Verbum Caro. You know, the first volume of the Explorations in Theology, in which he says that the saints 
Um, and of course, in the back of his mind is not only the saints, but I mean the incarnate word. Um, he, he says the, the saints become a canonical display of the truth that they proclaim. And that, that's, the, that's exactly the point that you're making, Rachel, that, um, you know, there the, the danced body and the dancing body are one because, um, you know, there's been uh, a total giving over of the saint into, you know, as St. Paul says in the letter to the Romans, you know, that he talks about the Christians surrendering themselves over into the, into the pattern of doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. And you this know? is, I mean, this is the point Chesterton makes a lot with regard to the saints, right? Which is, we can like, and this goes back to your earlier point about improvisation, Adrian, yeah. right? Like, you know, if we're saying the saints are sort of the dance body and the dancing body or, yeah. you know, together, yeah. This is why there can be such a very like a variety of saints, and there's yeah. that's not a problem. It's not a contradiction. Exactly. Um, it's it is simply a living out of what's been given in Precisely. all of these in this this multiplicity and diversity of ways. Um, precisely like as it should be. Well, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And so it allows for. Um, exactly what Larry was saying a couple of minutes ago. I mean, that all of this sort of helps to explain or at least make plausible the, the sort of claim that again, you, you sort of made at the very beginning, namely uh, the fact that everything is given at the beginning and everything is received at the beginning. Um, the fact then that there are sort of immovable canons, which are sort of interiorized um, to, to create this kind of unity we're talking about is what enables a kind of newness and freshness, which which will be, you know, among other things, um, mm -hmm. not only will be holiness, not only in the sort of order of the good, but as David Schindler would always say, it would be holiness also in the order of the understanding. It would, it'll be, or it'll be, and, and the unity of those two things is the beautiful for Balthazar, right? So it'll be, it'll be the, a, the, a beauty of holiness that, that actually plays a, a role in kind of the perspective of fruitfulness in um, unfolding, uh, sh showing forth the kind of power and fecundity of the canons and behind the canons, the power and fecundity of God's truth, you know? Um, yeah, so you really cool. will have a kind of reconciliation between a kind of good multiplicity, a kind of good newness and a, a kind of absolute unerring, you know, fidelity to what's all, what the, the faith that's been delivered once and for all to the saints period. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. Can I just, I, sure. just Rodney, right. one thing that, that, that comes to mind here that's, uh, there's a kind of a paradox here, um, to, um, just to go back to the jazz analogies for a second, because this is really good, what you guys are saying is so helpful. Um, we often think of actually John Coltrane as a sort of, um, almost a betrayer of the jazz tradition because he got, you know, he, he, he was the kind of the father of avant-garde jazz or whatever. Right. But the fact of the matter is, and this is what's sort of the paradox of, of Coltrane. First of all, there was nobody more steeped in the tradition right. of jazz than right. John Coltrane. So he's he's deeply drunk from the wells of all the greats before yeah. him, all the way back to Parker and, and Lester Young and all those guys. 
but the but the but the year or the two years before he started his avant-garde phase, he he literally kind of lived with um, Thelonious Monk, mm. and Monk, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, sort of taught him the the the, the, the all the, the stuff he needed. He, he knew that he had a lot to learn. In other words, right? right. So here's a, a right. lot of humility going mm -hmm. to one of the quote fathers of jazz to be exactly. Tricky. For a year before he's willing to go out and take the risks that he takes. Now he can take those risks because he's full of the tradition, right? So it's that's just like, it. that's it, right? So it's, so, so the problem we're getting so much in the, in the church today, of course, is that people think that they're only able to be creative when they exactly the tradition, but then of course they're not, they're, it's so banal. It's so repetitive of stuff that yeah. was said in 1968 or 1972. It doesn't sound interesting at all. Um, whereas, you know, the, 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 those who are being creatively faithful, I mean, Balthazar doesn't sound like anybody before him in a way, and yet he's just doing the same thing that the great. Yeah, no, exactly. Way. You know, I read something the other day that said, you know, at, at the very least, uh, say, for example, Cardinal McElroy's essay in America magazine, you know, is, is raising a conversation that we need to have, uh, to which I said to somebody, uh, no. It's a conversation yeah. we already had right? and it's old yeah, and it's banal and it's been answered and it's been answered definitively by John Paul and others. Uh, and, and so that's I'm not here to reopen that uh, question in that debate, that conversation. I just point out, yeah, Rodney, there's there's a certain banality to what's going on in the church today that is simply the rehashing of other but banalities. But but isn't it isn't it interesting that um, so both the calling into question of the canons and the failure to sort of uh, enact you know what we could call creative fidelity to the tradition, right. which is the very soul of the tradition, in the sense that we've been laying out, should be connected with um, or should take the form of a kind of calling into question of the sexual teaching, um, which is about, yeah. you know, as Balthazar says, again, in another wonderful essay in, in Homo Creatus Est, you know, man was created called tradition, uh, uh, which is sort of the, you know, which the sexual teaching has to do with uh, the fundamental form of tradition, which is handing on life to the next generation. Mm. Right. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, th there too, right. I mean, there's a, there's an immovable canon, which is, you know, human nature and, um, you know, the, the sexual act is generative. Uh, and Balthazar makes this beautiful point in that essay that, uh, the pleasure of the act uh, is actually a kind of redundancy of the, the precisely the generativity of it, you know, which he sees as a kind of, you know, and it's this very Aristotelian point is a kind of um, ex exp experience of completion in giving away, uh, the completion of being and giving being away. Right, exactly. Um, but that, but that, and that, and that, 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 that act and the pleasure of it 
um, is is both situated within and and helps carry, uh, you know, the whole sort of self transmission of of humanity <clears throat> as a as a natural and sort of cultural entity, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that, and that, and so that, so that the, so that the, all of the morality, all of the, 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 the manners and morals and rituals that, that surround sex and the art of love and marriage are, are, are sort of both prisms are sort of like lenses for focusing and at the same time are like sources of this kind of self-traditioning of man. And, and so it's not an accident. I think that, um, you know, this, this failure to um, be traditional in this sense and that, you know, in, in the sort of ecclesial sense uh, is tied up with a kind of calling into question of, what it means to be traditional in this kind of generative educate educative sense, you know, yeah, that, yeah. exactly. I think but there's those two things are created. Those two things are, are connected, you know, because at the, at the core of the ecclesial tradition is the Eucharist, which is, is, is kind of like the way that, you know, is the sort of nuptial yeah. relation between Christ and his church enacted in the Eucharist, which is, which is the, 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 the kind of fulfillment of the kind of natural symbolism of the, 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 the generative, you know, act. So I, I mean, these things are deeply connected with each other. It's not well, exactly. Act. I like the fact you mentioned the canon of human nature as such, because along these yeah. same lines that you're talking about, uh, that it's very instructive, right? That the more things change, the more they stay the same. The curve of the human shoulder will, it's always the same. That whenever from time immemorial cultures have declined, right? they always decline in the direction of a sexual debauchery. And right. It, they all, it, it, there's an absolute sociological correlation between the decline yeah. of any civilization and the rise of complete sexual debauchery. And yet today we, we consider it a form of enlightenment, something new and different. And the, nobody's ever thought this way before. And it's just that, you know, the, I wish most modern people could just go back and read some of the exploits of the average sort of citizen of Rome, say around 150, 200 AD to, to get us, it would make, uh, it would make our sexual exploits look tame in comparison. But anyway, but, I wanna, but it, I wanna, it, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say just one last point. I mean, the right. It, we see the same thing, the same sort of pattern uh, of creative fidelity also in the, the sort of um, the, the sphere of, of generation and of, of education, right? In the sphere of the kind of self-traditioning of, of, of humanity, because um, it, it's in giving yourself over to the canons um, that you can, you're, you're fruitful on, on every level, you know, you're fruitful yeah, of new yeah, life. Yeah. You're fruitful in the sense of a kind of, a kind of art of love, you know, you're fruitful also in the sense that um, th there's a there's a there's a kind of um, uh, of 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 
you know, giving of there's a kind of entrance into a sort of good self mastery. And, and, and this is another point that I just wanted to make that just relative to that self mastery is that absent that kind of self mastery, again, that comes through obedience to the canons. Um, we actually don't really have complete access to our own subjectivity, which means that we don't have complete access to our political subjectivity, which means that we're fodder for cybernetics. We, we become, instead of uh, political subjects, we become cybernetic objects. And so we're, we're ready for technological tyranny. Mm. And that's Digital. another thing. It's another thing that all these people that are calling into question the sexual teaching of the church just don't see. They don't see that, you know, they're not, they're not, um, they're not, it's not about sort of affirming these individuals who feel this way or that way. They're, they're, they're conspiring with a whole sort of anthropological drift in the civilization that goes from, uh, that, that, that basically is about reducing um, obediently self-mastering political subjects to, um, to uh, um, objects for cybernetic yeah. control. Absolutely. Um, my, uh, just the f last week, uh, my latest article in Catholic Old Report was called mm. Cardinal, Cardinal Supich and the Hermeneutics of the Abyss. And, and, and I was... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I've got to read that. I, you I got to go read it. Uh, I was taking Cardinal Supich to task for his gross and despicable misuse of Pope Benedict's theology in order to endorse the very project of uh, non non creative faithfulness here. Uh, it, 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 I, I just found it absolutely despicable. And so I had to say something. And so I did. But the, the point was exactly what you're saying here is that it's it, regardless of the specific quote that he had from Pope Benedict, the problem with what Cardinal Supich was doing and in invoking Benedict in order to endorse his project by cherry picking something from Benedict was that he therefore fundamentally misunderstands Benedict's basic insight into the crisis we face today. And right. that crisis is exactly this, this theodramatic and anthropological crisis that you were just talking about and talking about the cybernetic threat, right. what I call, well, I, I allude to Benedict's opening in introduction mm -hmm. to Christianity, where he talks about Teresa Lisieux, despite all of her all of the things she had going for her in terms of Catholic culture, family upbringing was right. still was deeply, deeply, deeply tempted by atheism. Yeah. And it was Ratzinger who used the phrase. She felt the abyss below. She I felt see. the nothingness below. Right. She felt the yawning chasm of modernity's. They know me. It's 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 meaninglessness right. uh, enveloping her. And, and what Benedict understood was this is the crisis of our age. I mean, this is what he calls the eclipse of God. Yeah. Uh, this is what he got. And, and so, you know, the abyss, that's why, so that's why I say Cardinal Supich misses the entire point mm. of, of, of Benedict's theology, which was um, a kind of creed de cour against this sort of yeah. modern crisis yeah. of meaning. Yeah. 
Uh, So anyway, yeah, but by all means, go, 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 go read it. I I think you might enjoy it. Um, But I want to shift gears a little bit. We're, we're now coming up in about an hour and a half of doing this, which is great. Okay. Uh, We, we don't, I'm not going to put any time constraints on this. We can talk for however long we want to talk. The four of us don't get together enough. And I want to turn it, I I want to turn it over back to Rachel and and Rodney as well, but it does, as we were talking, it strikes me that in, in all of this, it, all this talk about canons and creative fidelity and, and the history and the mediation of being and so on is mm-hmm. that this is precisely why it is still of vital importance. It's why it is so still critically important to understand the the, the absolute meaningfulness of ressourcement theology, theology yeah. of, of communio type theology, because mm-hmm. it embodies precisely what Robbie yeah. was talking about, about the Coltrane, right? Being so immersed in, in the culture of jazz, so immersed in it that he was unable then, in a sense, to riff on it. As, as, mm-hmm. as, as I think that was your word, Adrian, to, to yeah. riff on it like that. This is what resource month theologians like De Lubach, Balthazar Ratzinger, Daniel Lu, all of them were doing. I mean, they were so immersed in the tradition that they were then able to develop things creatively, which is one of the reasons why I get so upset when I hear people criticizing Balthazar for, like, if, you know, was and and, you know, uh, mistranslated, right. dare we hope, uh, right. you know, like, well, he's a heretic because he thinks that maybe everybody's good. God, you know, pull your head out of your rear end. I mean, it, it, it's so infuriating to me. Right. I, I refer to such theology as just so wooden, so flat footed. Uh, it's, it, I mean, it's what we used to pejoratively call Denzinger theology. You can go and memorize uh, 10 million catechism verses, 10 million Denzinger. And, and those things are all necessary. And certainly memorizing those things would be a good thing. Absolutely. It would be. Yeah. But to reduce theology to those things is precisely mm. the problem. And then on the other side of the equation, of course, we've been critical of the super, just the McElroy's, the, the whole progressive God is doing a new thing. Surprise us, Lord, uh, sort of thing. Um, and it seems right. to me, and I don't mean to reduce this to facile political categories, but it does seem to me that there is a tremendous amount at stake here, which is why theology matters and, yeah. and, and, and why it's terribly important that communio theology not be eclipsed, that it not yeah. be forgotten. I know we, Rodney and I had a conversation with D.C. Schindler and Mike Hanby maybe mm. about three or four months ago uh, before the passing of Dave's father. And uh, Dave was saying that that's one of his fears is that precisely that commun- in, in the current ecclesial environment, communio theology is simply being ignored and eclipsed and bypassed. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Um, Rachel, did you want to say something to that? Yeah, um, well, it, was, it just struck me. So, uh, you know, start going a little bit back to Adrian's uh, point about, you know, all the the norms around sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, in us sort of talking about the canons and then being creative after that, I mean, it, I mean, I was just thinking like, yeah, it's just kind of interesting that in a certain way, on a certain level, certainly physically, the most creative action possible for a human being is a child, actually, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and, <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny, like, there's really only one way to get it. We, I mean, we sort of like have sort of perverted it in a couple of different ways, but like, mm-hmm. actually, like you kind of have, like you have to follow a certain order in order to do it, right? right. Like in order to have a child. And yet- yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And yet like, um, yeah, like that's the most creative physical act possible, you know, like uh, is, is generating, uh, another human being, it seems to me. So, yeah. um, but it just struck me, Larry, you know, I was thinking about that and then all of the, the race or theologians that you just named plus more care for children, like, and, and talk about them in their wow. theology actually, which I had never really kind of thought of before. Um, but it seems to me, you know, Balthazar, uh, De Lubac, uh, I forget who else you named, but they, they Daniel, all, Daniel Lu, uh... they all, they all reference the child actually. Like a child is not a, mm, you know, a, a secondary thought for them actually. Like the, the child is really significant um, in, in all of their, now probably to greater and less degrees, but um, in, in all of their writing. And, and so again, this, this sort of, you know, um, like the most creative we can be is actually sort of, uh, we have to sort of rely on the canon of human nature, so to speak, right? But that's not just true physically, it's right. true metaphysically, it, it seems to me. And so, um, you know, the image that springs to mind is is Portal of the Mystery of, the Ho of Hope in Piggy talking yeah. about the little child hope, right? Like the little child hope is always returning to her parents. So, you know, for those who haven't read it, right, in in, in the portal of the mystery of hope, the the little child hope, um, it's like a family, the image to think of is an, a family walking along and with their little kids. And like the little child hope is like the kid always sort of runs forward and runs back to her parents, right? Runs forward and runs mm -hmm. back. So she always has to, you know, again, that sort of circling back to the origin in order to be free and, you know, creative if we want to put it that way. But the, you know, and it's yeah. such a, it's such a almost sort of banal image. Like we all know it as soon as Piggy says it, we all know it, but like the child has to run back to the origin, so to speak, her parents in order to, to be free. And, and so right there, you again, you kind of have just in a, a very sort of um, normal image, like exactly what we've been talking about, I think, um, uh, during our and, and And in Piggy, I'm glad you brought up Piggy, Rachel, because there's also in Piggy a constant, the, the, the sort of normativity of the flesh. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons why the child keeps arcing back to the parents is because the parents, are, I mean, the, the mother is, is the, you know, the physical woman upon which that child nursed. Uh, the, 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 the father is, is the person who brings home, you know, the money and so forth or, or works the farm uh, in, in physical ways to, to nurture the child in very, very concrete material ways. So as you know, in Peggy, you get all the time, this returning to the flesh, the flesh, the flesh. Um, and, I, I think that's also something that's being ignored in, in these current debates is, is the normativity of our bodling. And I don't mean bodliness and an abstraction, I mean the normativity of sarks, the normativity of the many, uh, I, I like what Rodney said earlier. I mean, uh, gosh, I did it again. Adrian said earlier about the sort of rituals surrounding lovemaking and so on. Uh, that's that pertains to a certain, you know, a certain constant, sort of uh, normativity of, of certain ways of doing. There's only yeah. some ways that human beings have made love down through the course of the centuries, regardless of what, you know, various people might say. And, and so, yeah, there's a normativity there as well. Rodney, you want you want you look like you want to say something. No, 
No, well, no, no. I mean, this is great. I mean, you know, and I, and I love the, the way that we've sort of uh, rounded this out by sort of talking about the way in which, um, you know, the form is given to the matter, the choreographers, the choreography is given yeah. to the dancer. I mean, right. there's, a, there's a beautiful symbiosis there that, that I think is lost, yeah. obviously, sort of on both sides of the yeah. of the theological extreme, where on the one hand, it's just, it's just all form, and we deny that there's any material receptivity, let's, you know, or whatever. And then on the other side, it's just, but I wonder, I mean, we can't get into this, obviously, because we're, you know, it's getting, the day is, uh, the day is getting long, and, and uh, some of us have yeah. jobs. But 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 one thing that I would like us, I mean, this would be kind of a fun thing for us to talk about maybe uh, in another episode would be, you know, the way in which the the um sort of uh stuff that was coming out of like the 30s, 40s, and 50s in European thought, the Frankfurt school and things like that, with a kind of weird mixture of sort of Freud and Marx and Nietzsche, sort of literally put on its head everything that we're we're talking about so that so that what what is highest no longer measures what is lowest but but in all cases sort of what is lowest measures what is highest so you become cynical about anything that's not just sheer um libido or whatever that whatever you want to be right so so it's either kind of um ego is is suppressive of id or it's um in marx it's you know uh, it's all economics driving all of our worldviews and the whole bit. It's it's all everything is driven sort of from below, and in some kind of really sad, pathetic way, I actually think that this somehow has gotten into some of the people that in the in the clergy that we're hearing from. They almost sound like they're coming from this very cynical perspective that what the church has been telling us up till now is, of course, what privileged sort of white males would tell us right you know so so that uh yeah. now it's time to hear the voice of god in the marginalized right which would which means you know what we know it means right and a real cynicism that we've ever actually heard the word of god maybe prior to vatican ii but certainly but maybe even worse maybe prior to vatican ii as interpreted by you know a certain group right which would mean that everything sort of in the past then would be not only not a source that we would need to learn from and draw from, but would be we would be suspicious of. So it's it, that's kind of where we are, I think. And this is something I think we, we we would, I think, maybe talk about at some point is it's not so much even that it's a doubt about whether or not revelation can be meted in history it's almost worse than that it's 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 a kind of conviction that no what we get from history is just sheer power grabs from people yeah, yeah. right yeah. and it's and, a, I, I agree rodney i think it's uh yeah. it's a prioritizing of death over life i mean yes. I, I, I'm, I'm reminded of the essay by hans jonas where he says okay. in, in ancient cultures right life was the primordial aboriginal reality and it and they saw life wherever there was dynamic movement right so stars are alive rivers are alive you know uh and it was death and immobility and sort of inertial stolidity that 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 was the anomaly that needed explaining today is the opposite uh death and that which is purely non-living and inert 
is the aboriginal reality and life is the anomaly mm -hmm. that needs explaining and yeah. too often we explain it as simply a tragic epiphenomenal accident yeah and I, so I, I i agree with you i you know i've talked about this a lot the de facto atheism that is at the heart of so much of what's going on in the church today uh it's a bacillus that has infected the church in deep deep ways it, it, it's a rot and it's a deep rot. And I hate to end on that note. So let's end on something. Let's end on something a little more positive. Rachel, I'm going to give you the last word. Give oh, us no. a, give us a <laughs> after that oh, sort of chair, after that rant on death and so on. Uh, give us something positive to send us off. And then maybe I'll turn to Adrian too for one last send off. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm just going to return to the point I made earlier about, I think we often think of time and space as a weight <clears throat> now, um, you know, and I, you know, I, especially as I get older, I get it, you know, um, Larry, when, uh, I was an undergrad. You always used to like complain to me about your various ailments. And I was always like, what's your problem? Man? <laughs> so <laughs> now I understand. Um, but, but like, you know, um, I, you know, in uh, I'll return to the Timaeus cause I'm sort of obsessed with that dialogue, but that's where Plato says that time's a moving Im image of eternity. Right. And it's like a very difficult thing to grasp that concept, but um you know, I think I always think of like a maple tree and how like there's a perfection in that tree in every season, actually. Right. Like there's a sort of sparse beauty in the winter. And then, of course, you have like the budding in this in the spring. That's really beautiful. And then in the summer, there's this like lush fullness. And then, of course, in the fall, you have, you know, the bright orange hues and everything like that. And like, literally without time, that would not be possible. Right. Like to, to, for us to sort of receive that, perf those perfections, all of those perfections. And I, I think that's what Plato's getting at when he, when he says that time's a moving image of eternity, that somehow in eternity, that's all there all at once, but we, we're, we don't have that capacity to, to receive it all yeah. at once. So yeah. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for time and space, actually, to re to receive those perfections. Actually, so yeah, that's yeah, that's very my good. Uplifting. And, and thank you for bringing up. <laughs> thank you for bringing up all of my ailments, as you go. That's great. <laughs> that's great. Uh, yeah, I, I I've never been a robust person physically. <laughs> let's put it that way. I've been. I uh, if anybody ever wrote my biography, and and they should not. Uh, <laughs> If I ever wrote my own autobiography, it would be called, it would be called Dear Me, uh, because it's just Dear Me, all the crap that's happened to me. But anyway, I, I, I was a sickly, hypochondriac, little nerdy, turdy little boy, uh, and, and I still am. I'm not so little, fat as a house, but nevertheless, Adrian, all, all, all that silliness aside, you want to you toss in some uh, last second pearls of wisdom before we sign off? <laughs> oh, I don't know how how pearly these pearls are going to be. But, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, you know, Plato's, Plato's disciple, Aristotle, um, you know, sort of often accused of, uh, you know, wanting to sort of reduce the, the real to, you know, the quote unquote static, but um, 
in a certain sense, the opposite is the case. I mean, it's, you know, at the heart of his project, close to the heart of his project is um, saving motion and, and showing that it actually is intelligible and how it's intelligible, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and there's just, there's something, you know, that, 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 you know, he, he, he thinks that, um, you know, natural philosophy, a science of nature could, could sort of, in some branches at least, employ mathematics, but it could never be mathematics because uh, he thinks mathematics abstracts from motion. Um, and I think that's true even of, of physics, you know, more modern types of mathematics yeah, that are, yeah, that are yeah. used in physics today. Um, so there's really nothing that can replace um, sort of epistemologically uh, the encounter with a moving thing that, that in moving is, uh, you know, both displaying its own inner, I mean, at least in the paradigm cases, this is so displaying its own sort of inner sourcehood and at the same time um, aspiring to, you know, a, a, a completion that's sort of given originally with the sourcehood, but, but it's also, also remains to be unfolded and that, and that, yeah. uh, that motion is a uh, has to be understood as a kind of uh, as a kind of erotic self transcendence. It's a it's a there, there's something there's a there's a kind of natural love that's being expressed there, um, and um, yeah, I just I think that. Uh, yeah, and that 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 if we if we want to sort of, that that rather than sort of speaking abstractly about you know the changing and the unchanging and so forth, I mean, um, we we would do well to kind of think about you know this this erotic movement um, towards fullness that that we see in 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 natural bodies, especially living ones, you know, and especially human ones, you know, as they, as they, they go about, um, uh, you know, handing on humanity as a kind of hendiadis of nature and culture, you know? Well, that, that is a great summation of just about everything we've been talking about. So, uh, thanks. That, that was, that was, that was definitely pearls of wisdom there, Adrian, at the end. <laughs> At the end, there were pearls of wisdom. <laughs> pearls of wisdom. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so and I just uh, thank you guys. It's been one of the thank longest, you. uh, longest YouTube uh, podcast conversations <laughs> I've, I've, I've ever done. And that's because I love y'all. And so, th uh, yeah, this has been Everything great. Mutual, yeah. yeah. So, 
So thanks a lot, guys. I thought it was a wonderful yep. conversation. And let me uh, hit the stop record button uh, so we don't say anything. Don't say anything rude just yet.